This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Proverbs 31 is written for everyone. It's written for all readers. It was written for readers in an ancient context. It's written for readers in a contemporary context. The Proverbs 31 woman, if we can call her that, it is an example of what woman, what wisdom is. But understanding Proverbs 31 is contingent upon understanding the rest of the book of Proverbs. It's the climax for the book of Proverbs. So saying, what does it mean? Or asking, what does it mean to be a Proverbs 31 woman? Well, that's really contingent upon your reading of the rest of the book of Proverbs. And that poem after reading the entire book of Proverbs, becomes applicable to all readers. Hmm. So what's so special about, you said that poem, uh, it sounds like you're singling that, that chunk out as a, as a separate poem or, or as a climax poem. So what's so different about that poem? Good question. It, it seems to be a separate poem. now, And the reason why I say that Proverbs 31 seems to be a separate poem, let, let's splice this up a little bit, okay? Proverbs 31 from verses 1 to 9 are are, uh, one section written by a person named Lemuel, or there's a conversation uh, with Lemuel, between Lemuel and his mother. Mm -hmm. And we don't know exactly where that conversation ends per se, but it seems like there's a new beginning at Proverbs 31.10. We have reason to believe that as we read the entire chapter, because Proverbs 31.10 in Hebrew, starts with the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is like the English letter A. It's the first letter of the alphabet. And then what we see throughout the next 22 verses are the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet represented at the beginning of each verse. It's called an acrostic. So we have Aleph, and then we have Bet, and then we have Gimel, Dalet, Hevav, all the way to Tav, all the way to the end of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it seems like that section... It's reasonable to suggest that that section is intentionally put together as a poem. So we do something like acrostic poetry when we're kids. You might, people take the letters of your name and then write some adjective for each letter that describes you or something like that. That's a, a, a type of acrostic. But this is an alphabetic acrostic. Actually, the word alphabet, we get this from Aleph Beit, right? Uh, yeah. So, um, so what, what is the purpose of doing an alphabetic acrostic? Well, there we can suppose first of all it's very difficult to get into the mind of the of the author what was the author thinking when the author put together this acrostic we we don't know exactly what the author was thinking but we can suppose that an acrostic may have been easier to remember and that could be mm-hmm. one of the reasons right so we have eshet hail you know it starts with aleph and then we have batach balev balat bet gimel sort of like a B, C, you can hear it. D, yeah, it, so almost it might like be alphabetic alliteration or something like that. Right. It it might. So it, when people would come across a, a, across six, it might be similar 
might have been similar to our us and our children saying the ABCs, A, B, C, mm. D. It may have sounded something like that to the original hearers or readers. So that's one of the reasons maybe why acrostics may have been used. Hmm. And it's interesting that you you pointed out before this, you have the sayings of King Lemuel and his mother. His mother seems to be instructing him there. And and just as you said that, it, that reminded me that in Proverbs 1, you have the listen to your father, do not forsake the Torah of your mother, right? Do you, do you think this is an example of somebody's mother giving them Torah instruction? Well, we the mother is very, very important in the book of Proverbs. We frequently uh, understand the book of Proverbs to be, in many, in, in many of the Proverbs, to be um, a conversation to a certain extent between a father and a son, when in reality, mm-hmm. Uh, one of the major components, one of the major characteristics of biblical Hebrew poetry is parallelism. And, and, and that is sometimes synonymous sayings are put right next to each other. They're not always synonymous, mm-hmm. but sometimes synonymous sayings are put right next to each other and, or somewhat synonymous. And in many cases, in, in the Proverbs, we have something said about the father and then subsequently said about the mother, right? And so the mother and the father really go together in the book of Proverbs. So by the time we get to Proverbs 31, again, what I would consider to be the apex, the end of the book of Proverbs, we have the mother saying to the son, well, Proverbs 31.1 says, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him, right? And then she says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? And then she says, do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy destroy kings. So we're kind of like, okay, Lemuel is this wise king. He's being instructed by this wise woman, right? This woman not to give his strength to women. So what, what, what should he give his strength to? And then we have this poem of this woman who represents in a very realistic way what it is to be wise, a wise person. Well, I mean, again, I, you just call me back to Proverbs 7, where it's, my son, don't give yourself to this woman, right? Uh, give it to this other woman instead, Lady Wisdom versus Lady Folly there. And so it seems to be it seems to be doing something very similar at the very end. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. What, what I what I think Proverbs in many in many of the the texts that we see where women are being represented, they, they become symbol, symbols essentially of taking a particular trajectory in life. So in many cases, and I think this is a real struggle for, for people that take the scripture seriously, in many cases, it's very difficult for to, rep, to recognize that those women are representative of a certain trajectory in life and not real women, right? So when we have this, right, so we have this, these, this, this righteous woman or this woman wisdom that we see early in, in chapters one through nine uh, of the book of Proverbs, that, that's representative of taking this pathway to wisdom. And then we have this, this woman who, who does all these foolish things, who calls young men to her house and all of these things. And, and sometimes we think, uh, we we have we can have the, the tendency to over literalize this. That that woman becomes a real woman, right? And those women and and what what the author seems to be doing there is utilizing this these these women as illustrations of extreme wisdom, right? Take this path, this the path of this woman versus don't go with with this woman because she leads to death. And that's essentially the those are the essentially the pathways that we see um, set out for us in a hyperbolic way, I think, throughout the book of Proverbs. 
So some people are going to be confused at this point because they're going to bring the assumption to, especially the Old Testament, that women were denigrated. They lived in a patriarchal system where they had no voice. They weren't important. They were lesser beings. And it sounds like what you're saying is women are being held up as model ways of living. And again, not the the woman themselves, but they're actually analogies and personifications of a way of life. Um, So how does that, how do you square that with this view of this kind of Procrustean uh, uh, patriarchy that is just there to basically subdue and dominate women. Right. So I don't think that finds much of a place, to be honest with you, in the book of Proverbs. For example, in the book of Proverbs, we see Proverbs like Proverbs 15, 20, which says, a wise son makes his gla- makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. So here we have, and this is just one of the examples. Here we have the mother and the father set in juxtaposition. They're set next to each other. They're set in parallel with each other. And essentially what we see is this son who has the potential to be full, a fool, take the mm-hmm. wrong way. He's hurting both of the parents. So the idea is that respect for the family unit includes the mother just as much as the father. This is not this is not uh, just saying, hey, respect your dad or respect your father or son, you know, listen to my way. So, so the father says the woman is included in many, not all, but in many of the Proverbs. So I don't know that there's much of a place for, I mean, people can have whatever opinion they want, but it just doesn't seem that the book of Proverbs is doing that. Um. So switching gears a little bit here, um, I think one of the things that is difficult for many when coming to the Proverbs is it's almost, if you've ever read the Quran, it, it, it's almost Quranic at points in the sense that it has lots of, uh, or what in the Eastern tradition they call sutras, just little sayings, little aphorisms, one after the other. They don't all seem to have to do exactly with the one next to it. Um, they seem to be compiled in such a way. And so if you think about the Quran is supposed to be impossible to memorize only for the the most uh, pious of Muslims be- because there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to how different surahs get thrown next to each other. Um, so do you think that's a fair description of that central portion of Proverbs, that it's the same way, it's just kind of a incohate mass of aphorisms, just sayings thrown together, or do you think there's some structure there? Uh, I think that there's some structure. So let's take a step back and just talk about biblical Hebrew poetry in general. Now, again, I'm going to speak generally here. This, what I'm about to say can be nuanced in many different ways. Let me just say a couple of things that generally speaking, many people would agree on. Okay. And that is the following. Uh, there are, there are two, at least two characteristics, principal characteristics to biblical Hebrew poetry that we see throughout the Bible. And, and, and because of this, we're able to go, oh, that's a poetic section, um, Biblical poetry is quite terse. It has these very short sayings, right? Uh, generally speaking, and those terse statements are um, normally written in parallelism. Now, parallelism is a hefty word that has been either denied or explained in many different ways. But let's just say briefly that juxt- with parallelism, juxtaposed lines somehow, some way, correspond with one another. Okay, Mm -hmm. so we can look at these lines that are next to each other, mostly two, sometimes three, sometimes four, but most of the time it's two. And we look at them and we go, oh, there's a connection between those. And it's normally these lines are normally very short. They're normally very terse, right? Ba, 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 
ba 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 and and there there's some sort of I like that connection without the in the words. yeah yeah well that there's some sense. type of right not there's not necessarily always some sort of metric connection I, mean, I wouldn't right. say that but but with within the content there there is normally a connection now that's the one thing right we have these these terse lines in parallelism the second thing we can say is that it's filled with all types of um, let's just say figurative language mostly mm-hmm. metaphor and so and so. When we look at a section of scripture that has these short lines, and the, normally two lines are, are somehow, some way related in terms of content, and that content consists of metaphorical language or, or, or um, some, you know, some type of um, um, figurative language, it's almost like a ding, ding, ding. We have we have poetry. Okay, now. What that does for us, and I would say for a lot of contemporary readers of portions of the Bible, is it makes it not only distinct from what we would consider to be narrative prose, but we're, we're, we we might not di- we we digest it significantly different, if that makes sense. Mm. We, we we look at narrative prose and we get all of these details, and in many times we don't have parallelism, though sometimes we do, and in many times we don't have metaphor, but sometimes we do. But then when we get to poetry, we go. Oh, okay. Wow. Now, hold on a second. Um, I have to di- digest this differently. And and sometimes we we don't we you know what we need to continue to work at as as readers. All of us need to continue to work at as readers is actually going through the process of breaking down some of this poetry. All right. So long response, but I think here here comes the uh, you know the, the the payoff when we break down some of the metaphorical language, when we break down what we're seeing in parallelism, what we end up seeing is that the book of Proverbs has these key themes that continuously mm-hmm. repeat themselves. And one of the things that we know in biblical as, as biblical students of the Bible is that when the Bible repeats itself, we as readers should listen. And by the way, that's not exclusive to the Bible. When J.R.R. Right. Tolkien, you know, repeats himself, we should listen. And when C.S. Lewis and when all of the great writers repeat themselves or somehow come back to the same themes, we should we should be paying attention to what's going on. And what we see in the Proverbs is that we repeatedly have these Proverbs that are related to family, our relationships within the family unit. And we, we have these Proverbs that mostly through metaphor relate to uh, the usage of speech, for example, we have proverbs about the tongue, the the lips, these types of things. We have proverbs that relate to humility. Lots of proverbs that relate to humility and teachability. Proverbs that relate to diligence and work. Proverbs that re- that relate to earning oddness wages. Proverbs, especially proverbs that relate to caring for the vulnerable. So I think that if we take into consideration that we're reading, really, the, in many ways. Uh, um, the essence of biblical poetry, the Proverbs and the Psalms, and um, and that this is how this was a way in which this type of literature was was written in the ancient world, and it's going to be filled with a lots lots of figurative, uh, you know, figures of speech that we may understand or may not understand. When we take those things into consideration, and we we end up breaking down and understanding large chunks at a time of the Proverbs, we realize there are indeed themes that we can latch onto and, and feed from.
So I heard kind of a dual strategy there. One is you need to listen, you just read through these or, or listen to them even, um, and you're going to hear things. So if you come into the proverb and say like, should I actually work an on, do I really need to work an honest day's labor? You know, by the time you get to the end of the Proverbs, if you listen, you're like, okay, yep, I need to work an honest day's labor. And there, and here's a couple of reasons why. Um, so that's well, the kind uh, of- let me pause you. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, but this is no, a no, perfect please. opportunity to say, we need to work an honest day's, honest day's labor by the time we get to Proverbs 31. Why do we need to? Because the woman of Proverbs 31 does. She is showing oh, yeah. us this major theme of the book, which is working hard, right? I mean, she does all of these things, and, and it's not because she's a woman. She is showing us what it looks like in a practical mm. way during that particular time period of, of what it would look like to apply this major theme. Uh, she seeks wool and flax and works with diligent hands, right? right? These types of things. She, she rises up while it's still night and she takes care of her family. That's the example that we have at the end of the book. Yeah. She is kind of a workaholic and, and maybe even a, a, a caricature, an extreme caricature of a work. I mean, when it, when, you know, when it says she buys a field and plants a vineyard, you're like, Oh, wait a second. You can't plant, build a vineyard by yourself, right? That's like a two family <laughs> operation. So at some point you realize it's a little over the top, but she's the tot. She's the type. And when she opens her hand, it's to the poor. When she opens her mouth, it's full of wisdom, right? So these themes, I like, I like what you're saying here is just, if you just go to the end, you'll see the goods that you've been getting throughout kind of stitched together in one person. Um, also insinuating that it's possible for one person to kind of embody all of these things, right? Or at least embody them in different ways throughout their life. I think that what we what we end up seeing is that it's possible to embody these principles, but we shouldn't look at this 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 poem as a checklist. It's intended. Right. I mean, num number one is when we see this, and this is lost in translation. We do recognize some of this is lost in translation, but when we see that there is the aleph, bet, gimel, that we see that acrostic, we should think, okay, poetic device. The author's mm -hmm. trying to get us to, to read this as poetry, right? And in, in every language, when we read poetry, we know there's a high level of figure of speech. There might be some hyperbole uh, things in biblical Hebrew poetry. There's going to be parallelism. So there might be some fitting in there of parallelism, right? And so when, when we read this, we recognize, okay, this is a poem. And these principles certainly apply, but this can't be a checklist of what someone needs to do every day in right. order to be considered a righteous woman. Right. It, it just can't be. Yeah. If, if there was a woman or a man who lived like that, we would pull them aside and have some pastoral counseling with them, right? And say, hey, look, if they're alive. Yeah. <laughs> they're still, they can manage to stay alive. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So that gives us um, some great keys uh, to open some doors within the Proverbs. I've heard Robert Alter, or maybe I read him say somewhere in that that poetics book, you know, the parallelism is often, you know, A, so much more so B, or A, contrasted with B in some kind of way. Um, I guess, it, you know, to the English-speaking ear, um, and maybe you have some examples from other languages, but uh, the English-speaking ear we look for meter and rhyme, right? Those are our two mm -hmm. main poetry devices. And, and I, you open the Hebrew and you're like, well, you don't get either of those. Maybe a little bit of meter every once in a while, but not much rhyme. Maybe a little bit of alliteration, yeah. but not much. Um, so I, I almost hear you saying, 
we need to learn this foreign system of poetry or we need to kind of like give up our Americanized poetic ear or Britishized uh, poetic ear and kind of learn this Hebraic poetry. Um, even if it's in English, you can learn the, we can adapt our ears to it. Is that right? Well, here's the thing. First of all, if I were to just concede to this point, it might sound a little like elitist, right? Like, right, right. look, look, me and Dr. Drew, Dr. Dom and Dr. Drew, we got this down. We know right, Hebrew. Right. So let us just tell you what the text means. And, uh, and that's not where this is going. That's not where I want to go with this. What I think is important is as readers, as contemporary readers, we have to to be conscious of the fact that we do lose something in transit, tra- translation. And, and poetry, out of all of the types of literature that you could translate, is might be the, the most difficult, right? Uh, you know, mm. I, I've learned a couple of languages as an adult, and poetry is very difficult to read in a language that's not your that's not your mother tongue. Uh, that and humor, it, which right, is right. also Jokes in the Bible, is very yep. difficult. Right, it's very difficult to get in tongues that are not your mother tongue. So, so uh, please understand. If I say yes to to this to this uh, to, to your question, it might sound a little elitist. That's not where I want to go. What I'm saying is that we need to be self-aware as contemporary readers. We need to recognize that there are some things that we indeed lose in translation. And that takes sometimes hard work, particularly in those difficult texts, in order to figure out what's going on. And we can't make dogmatic judgments about what a text is saying if it's not ext- if it's not clear, if we if there needs, if there's some more work to be done. So let me just say it like this. When there is some type of parallelism in meaning, right, semantic parallelism, that's what we would, we would call that. If there's some sort of p- parallelism in meaning, whether it be the same meaning or opposite meaning between two lines, that can normally be translated somehow, some way, right? Hmm. Not, not exactly, not perfectly. None of this is a perfect science, but we do our translators are pretty good at translating meaning these days. What can't be translated all of the time is when there's correspondence in other areas like phonology, how things sound. Right, so you mentioned right. Eng- you mentioned English language poetry. We're normally used to phonology, right? So the type of you know the, the type of poetry that would rhyme, like I say it all the time. I'm going to drop a dime, right? That's phonology. That's also my weak. Uh, this is old New York yeah, dominant yeah. coming out. My freestyle, my oh my weak freestyle <laughs> skills. I can still I can still break dance and beatbox, but I can't freestyle that much anymore. I'll bring the cardboard to California. All right, man. <laughs> so, but but in all serious, that that gets lost, right? Phonology, the sounds, right? Morphology, how words change. Biblical Hebrew writers, they. They messed around with words and they 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 changed them between in between lines or I'm sorry uh, in in correspond like in corresponding lines so you could see that there was uh, some sort of connection with how words were conjugated and also like syntax how words are combined in a sentence mm-hmm. that it also we see that in parallelism but um, it's very difficult to translate that right so but as far as meaning is concerned. We generally can translate that. So I don't want to say, no, 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 forget about everything you've learned about, about poetry. Um, I just want us to be self-aware as readers. We have to recognize that we can get meaning, but we do lose especially some, something in these three areas of, of morphology, syntax, and phonology. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, you know, watching a foreign film 
and while you're getting the translation on, you know, in the subtitles, um, you, you just ever, ever aware that you're not getting everything that's going on in, in the yeah. film. And, or, or if you watch it with the native speaker, they're explaining to you, Oh, hold on. Did you hear what they did here? And they can, they can show you all these other things. Um, so it occurs to me that uh, Eleanor Stump, a philosopher, she she said in one of her books, her her one of these big books that she put out, she said, "Look, in this book, uh, if you're like me, when people put little lyrics or poems at the beginning of their chapters, I just skip straight over those because I just want to get straight to their arguments. Like, what are they talking about?" And she implores people not to skip over them because she chose these things very carefully. And it also occurs to me that most people don't like to read poetry at all. Um, and so in scripture, I think, you know, everybody reads Exodus 14, but then Exodus 15, they're like, and the horse and rider thrown in the sea, yada, yada, yada. And they just skip straight down. Deuteronomy 32, most people don't even know that, that Moses, uh, is, has to teach Israel this, this song, right? That's actually the only thing they're commanded to learn. Um, so five as well. Yeah, 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 Deborah. Yeah, this is beautiful. This beautiful poetry, which I kind of slow jam with my classes because it's it's amazing <laughs> what it's doing. But you really do kind of have to force people. A lot of people just want to skip right over. And I asked students, "Did you actually read that?" And they're like, "No, not really." And and I think somebody might even say something like, "Well, you know, there's no poetry in the Gospels, so like it is really about the story, the story, the story." Can you make a quick pitch why we should be uh, slowing down and reading this poetry? Oh, geez. Let me, um, the way that you pose that question, I sort of have all of these sentiments inside that I probably need to let subside before I answer this in a reasonable <laughs> way. And, and the reason is because um, there is no content that is separate from presentation in, in any words. And so if we are looking for the content, that is the story, what's it saying, we have to deal, we have to work through the presentation. So if anybody wants to read the Psalms, the Proverbs, the dialogue of the dialogues of Job and other uh, sections of the scripture that are predominantly written in poetry, Lamentations, another one, lots of the prophets, for example, right? Um, in order to properly understand the content, we have to work in poetry, and we don't get to set the rules for that. Our, our goal is to ch- strive to understand as much as we possibly can, recognizing our distance from the text. Our, our goal is to try to understand what was going on, what those, what those authors were trying to say in the written format, right? Not what was going on in their mind, that was it what they were trying to say in the written format. And then those that are, uh, that are uh, those like you and I that are part of faith communities, Christian communities, we try to do our best to apply those pr- the principles of those texts to, to our lives. I will just say this, and this is a, a little bit more direct. It's very difficult to say you have a high view of, of the scriptures if you skip the poetic sections, if you skip the difficult sections, and, and that is, or if you don't preach them because mm. of, uh, we... We, we don't set the rules for this. We have uh, the scriptures that are graciously, that have been graciously given to us, and it's our responsibility as readers to read them well. I'll just say, it's the responsibility of readers that come across wonderful books like The Hobbit 
wonderful books like the Chronicles of Narnia and the, and the like. It's the responsibility of the readers to pay respect to the authors. Let's let's even go a little bit a little bit more things that are a little bit more difficult to understand, like to contemporary readers. Shakespeare. It's the responsibility mm. of contemporary readers to pay respect to the authors and do our best to meet the author in that in that text. And that's what that is a huge huge push to 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 work through the difficult sections of biblical Hebrew poetry. Yes, one of the things that we haven't brought up yet is just our our slightly wonky view of poetry that we carry around with us as moderns, uh, as specifically, you know, post 20th century, because I think most of us carry around this view of poetry that we learn in school. It's, it's an outward verbal expression of some kind of inner thought. It's getting it out there on the page or getting it out there in the, in the world uh, where this is my view. And you can correct me if you want, um, if I'm missing something here, but I, I see the poetry of the prophets and of the wisdom literature and, and the songs of Deborah, even as kind of shrewd argumentation with the audience. Listen, I'm trying to tell you about reality. This is this, and this is the way I want to say it. And some people might say, well, why didn't they just say what they meant? And I'm like, they are saying what they mean. Uh, why would you think poetry is an inadequate way to say the most important things that the prophets have to say to Israel? So, I wonder if it really is that kind of fluffy artistic view of expressionism that we get in poetry today that is muddying the water that makes people kind of skip over it and say this isn't important. Well, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not so sure. But, but here's what I will say: when poetry, because of how it is written, even in even lots of contemporary poetry, though I, I do not claim to be an expert on poetry, world poetry, right? But let's just mm-hmm. talk about some English language contemporary poetry that we're familiar with. Poetry, because of how the language is, because of how language is utilized, even in many ways, some terse statements, uh, v- figures of speech, uh, lots of imagery and the like, it has a way on playing on the human affect that, that narrative prose doesn't. And so sc- when we encounter the scripture, when we engage with the scriptures, we are to engage with the scriptures with our whole being, not just with sort of this cognitive domain. Oh, I will take the facts when we encounter, when we encounter the, when we engage with poetry, the facts are there. There, there is teaching in poetry, but it is, it is permitting us, I would say, giving us the privilege of utilizing other dimensions of our being that are less Mm. utilized, I would say, in other types of, of literature, and so there is, there are s- distinct reasons for reading, for for writing in poetry, for a reader that is those writers that wrote in poetry, and, and expect the readers to to interact with that text in a in a broader way than just we could say the cognitive domain. Yeah, there, it just occurred to me as you were saying that there, there's no way to yada, yada, yada your way through a poem, right? You really do have no. to read each line and take it seriously. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know, one of my, my mentor, my, my uh, doctor father, Ed Greenstein, would, would oh, always yeah. say in class, he would, he would say, um, um, what if I gave you a, a handout for a, for a really famous song that you knew? And, and uh, he said, when we're all doing this together, 
if we all sang this together, when we got to the chorus of the song, right, we would all sing this loudly. We would all jump in together because we all knew the chorus and everything like that. And then when we got to the verse, you know, the voices would sort of, uh, you know, mellow out a little bit. But then we got to the chorus and everybody would sing again. You know, those of us that are part of Christian congregations know that this is exactly the way it is in contemporary uh, worship right. music, correct? Right. Now, but this applies, I think, to to reading some narrative and poetry, because when we read narrative, particularly if we're familiar with text, we can zip through them. Oh, yeah. And then Abraham did this. And then Abraham did. I'm not saying that we should. Right. And the writers of biblical narrative, I mean, if you read, for example, Poetics of Biblical Narrative and some of these these books that are written on biblical narrative, my gosh, these writers also were very, very smart. I'm not saying we should zip through it, but I'm saying we tend to zip through it sort of like when, sort of like if we get that 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 sheet of paper that has the lyrics on it, if we're asked to read the 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 lyrics, we're going to skip through the course. We're not going to read the course. We read narrative frequently like we read the chorus of, of songs, mm. right? We we just sort of skip through sections. We sort of know what it says. But we actually need to read poetry like we're singing the song. And we need to folk, we need to do it loudly. We need to focus on the words. We need to sort of jump in with the chorus. I mean, I hope the illustration applies here. Uh, that's how poetry needs to be encountered. We can't skip over the the, the chorus. Uh, like we can at, or like we do maybe when we read narrative. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a great illustration. Um, okay, one final question for you, and it's a zinger. Uh, so you can feel free to pass if you want. I'm going to give you a pass button if you want to hit I generally it. don't uh, pass, but let's see. All right, all right. Um, why are there no Proverbs for girls? Why are the Proverbs written to the young men and the sons? Yeah, I think this has it i'm not going to pass on this i would never right. ever ever pass on <laughs> such a question uh i i think this has a lot to do with how the book was written and presented so let me try to do my best here and explain this okay uh i have you ever read the book the chosen by Haim potok i know of it have not read okay it. Uh, sorry it's not a quiz you can cut this out of the you can cut that no it's fine, you fine. you'd be um, amazed how many books i haven't read <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm more amazed by how many books you've actually written, but, but Haim Potok. So he writes, there's a scene in which Danny Saunders, he is the son of the rabbi, the big rabbi, Reb Saunders, right? He, Danny and his, and his, and his new, newfound friend Reuven are in the synagogue. And Danny's father gives this long teaching uh, on, you know, long teaching on a Saturday afternoon. And then he turns to his son, Danny, and he says to his son, Danny, Danny, do you um, have anything to say? And we as readers are like, why is he asking? He's the, he's the tzaddik. He's the big guy, right? Why is he asking his son if he has anything to say? And what the reader figures out through the next like exchange between Danny and his father is that Danny's father intentionally implements errors into the teaching so that Danny and him can have a discussion in front of a crowd. Okay. So what I think that we see in the book of Proverbs, and I think we see this in the book of Job too, is mm. there's this, this sort of this discussion going on. It's not really a dialogue in, in Proverbs. It is in Job. But in Proverbs, what we end up seeing is this father and the mother talking to the son, right? Talking to the son, talking to the son. And what we're getting is two things here. We're getting this back and forth of information, this back and forth of content, content but we're also 
getting, uh, we're not only seeing what's communicated, but we're also seeing how it's communicated. And how it's communicated is in biblical poetry in, po- in this sort of prover- proverbial format that we see you know, in other literature in, in, the, in the ancient Near East. So that's what I think is going on in terms of how the book is structured. I don't think the proverb is just for young boys. Clearly, most contemporary readers would not say such things. What I think that we're getting is two things. We're seeing content, what is communicated, like between Danny and his father, and how it's communicated, sort of as the crowd looking at the metaphors, the parallelism, the, the structure of the book, how it's all put together. We're sort of observing that this, this maybe, it's not so much of a back and forth in Proverbs, but at least this sort of between this exchange between the mother and the father and the son. That's what I probably think is happening. So it's, women don't become a Proverbs 31 woman by accident, they or by fiat, they become a Proverbs 31 woman by participating in the same wisdom tradition that the men do. Well, what I, I, I so so I have a little bit of an issue with the Proverbs thirty one woman. Right, right, right. Yeah, I was speaking. About, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but in terms of being a a, a person that um, can, for the most part, embody wisdom, take the right trajectory, and learn about these mate, and learn to to make the right decisions that demonstrate that, the, that this person is a fear of the Lord, as we see in Proverbs. Right. Proverbs 31 is crucial for that example for all people. It is the example for all people. It's crucial to understand the book of Proverbs leading up to the Proverbs 31 person to see how that, that Proverbs 31 woman embodies what we see basically preached throughout the book of Proverbs. Let me restate <clears throat> what I said then in light of what you just said. Uh, According to Proverbs, in order to become a mother whose Torah is worthwhile listening to, that doesn't happen by magic. That happens by the moms as young women participating in wisdom traditions alongside um, the boys. Yeah. Y- y- oh, sorry, brother. Net, I cut you off. Y- yes. No, no, go ahead. Okay. Uh, yes, a- a- absolutely. This, the, the, the wisdom that we see taught throughout the book of Proverbs uh, does not permit people to check boxes on that checklist, but it does permit people to draw closer and closer as they walk down this way of wisdom, draw closer and closer to this, to representing or not representing, forgive me, uh, uh, being more and more like this embodiment of wisdom that we see in Proverbs 31. Yes. So that would apply to all of sort of our, right, all of our, um, positions in life? How do we become better employees? Well, we, we try to be the Proverbs 31 woman. How do we become better mothers or fathers? How, how, you know, we try to be the Proverbs 31 woman. How do we honor the family more? We try to be like the Proverbs 31, 31 woman. Hmm. Well, Dr. Dominic Hernandez, thank you very much for your wisdom and guidance on this. Dr. Drew, thank you. It's an honor to be with you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.